you, Barry, for leading us in that powerful, powerful song that fits so well with our message series out of Isaiah chapter 40. It was the summer of 1945. World War II had just come to an end, and uh, all the soldiers were streaming back into our country. And some of those men came back to the jobs that they had been doing before the war started. And there were some Major League Baseball players who, who were no longer playing baseball but were involved in World War II. And now these players were coming back. And one of them was Joe DiMaggio. And so Joe DiMaggio, um, on this day, decided to go see a Yankees game before he suited up again and continued his illustrious career. And so on this day, Joe decides to take his little four-year-old son Joe Jr. with him to the ballpark and they tried to, to, to sit kind of um, you know nondescript he really didn't want to be recognized he just kind of snuck into the game he's sitting in the mezzanine with his boy but pretty soon thereafter people started noticing Joe DiMaggio's in the stands one person noticed and another person noticed and three other people noticed and after a while everybody notices Joe DiMaggio this amazing baseball player is there in Yankee Stadium and and people started chanting Joe 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 DiMaggio Joe 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 DiMaggio and and DiMaggio is feeling you know just a, a little bit embarrassed but kind of proud too that people still remember him still know who he was and and he looks down at his son to see if his son is hearing all of this and seeing all this adulation and at that moment, his four-year-old son looks up at his dad and he said, See, Daddy, everybody knows me. Everybody knows me. <laughs> See, Joe Jr. made the mistake of thinking all the glory that, that hot summer in Yankee Stadium belonged to him and not to his father. And human beings often make a far less innocent mistake when we live our lives and think it's all about us and all about our glory rather than God and his glory. I like what uh, Paul wrote because it's so descriptive of not only the time in which he wrote but, but of, of our own culture. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul writes these words, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What happens when we lose a sense of God and His glory in our culture? I think people are prone to two things. People are prone to arrogance and despair. People are prone to arrogance, and they think that life is all about them. They live for their own glory. They forget about God. But people are also prone to despair because as they live in this world and they find this world doesn't offer everything they think this world should offer, their hearts grow dark and they, they fall into a deep sense of despair. That's where many of our people find themselves in this particular culture. But according to Isaiah chapter 40, we have a gospel to proclaim. We have a message to shout from the highest mountain. We have a message to proclaim that's entirely too important not to proclaim. Here's how Isaiah describes that message in verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice 
with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And that's the message we proclaim as a church. And that's the message we ought to proclaim as individuals. People who are wandering around aimlessly, sometimes filled with arrogance, sometimes filled with despair. We get to say, here's your God. We say it with a shout. We're not afraid to say it. And so last week we began this message series from Isaiah 40, 40, we're calling Behold Our God. And you may recall in that message I said that ultimately our view of God will, will affect our worship of God, our witness for God, and our walk with God. And so today I want to take just a few minutes and I want to talk about an, a matter that's really important. I, I want us to talk about the glory of God. Now, in our passage that was read just a few moments ago, we find this beautiful promise, and if you listen closely as Daryl read, that promise is found in verse 5, where Isaiah says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we wonder, what is he referring to? What is this glory of the Lord that will be revealed? Now, when you're reading a book, especially a prophetic book like Isaiah, you need to understand, I think I mentioned this last week, you need to understand that there's kind of a, a close-in view, there's a close-in or near-term fulfillment, and then there's a far-term fulfillment or a far-term view. Now, the close-in fulfillment of this passage where all people will see the glory of the Lord I think he's referring to that moment one day when God will move and the people of Israel will be will be liberated from Egyptian or rather from Babylonian bondage but there's a more far-term view that I want us to talk about in just a moment so let me begin by asking the question what is the glory of of God and I would define the glory of God this way it's the manifestation of all that is God it is the brightness of God's holiness and love and purity and truth and goodness and power the glory of God is God's manifest presence there are moments when we're made aware of the presence of God of the glory of God there are those moments when we get glimpses and God's glory shines forth let me give you an example I've used this before but it and it's kind of a crude example but but I think it really makes the point about what is the glory of God so several years ago when our boys were little bitty we had invited some friends over and you know how it is when you invite friends over. Uh, you need to get everything right in the house. You're, you're scurrying around to pick things up. Uh, you want to make sure the meal is just right. And so I was given the task of giving one of my boys a bath. And I, I can't recall which son it was, but um, his initials are Reed Owen. And so I was, I was giving Reed a bath, little bitty boy, maybe three, four years old at the time. And right in the middle of that bath, the doorbell rings. We have guests who have come early. Can you imagine that? Guests coming early. I'm in the middle of giving Reed a bath. So I hurriedly get him out of the bath, and I'm getting him dried off, and I, the towel is draped around his neck, and I say, Reed, stay right here. So I left him there, and I walk down the hall to open the door to welcome our guests. Our guests walk in, but unbeknownst to me, 
my three-year-old son had toddled down the hallway following his dad. Toddled down the hallway. Didn't have a stitch of clothes on. Open the door. There are my guests. Here's me. Here's my naked four-year-old son. We're standing looking at him in all his glory. That which is concealed is revealed. That which is unknown is made manifest. When we think about the glory of God, it's when we see God for all that God is. We see God's brightness and glory. We see God's holiness. It's the answer to the prayer that, that Moses had in Exodus chapter 33. You remember Moses went up on the mountain received the Ten Commandments? And at one point, one point Moses makes this request he says, Lord, show me your glory. And, and God answers that, that prayer, that request. And he passed by. And, and Moses got to see from behind. He saw all of God's goodness. We wonder, what is the glory of God? Well, it's many things. But when Moses saw the glory of God, he, he saw all of God's goodness. Now, the glory of God is seen in many ways. For instance, God's glory is seen in creation. I love that, that somewhat familiar passage out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, where, where the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. It's like, the heavens are making this grand statement, this grand pronouncement about God and who He is. There are those nights when we go outside and look up into the sky. I'm told with the naked eye we can see, as we look up into the sky, we can see 5,000 stars. Now the earth will block our view a lot of times, and so normally we can see only about 2,500 stars. But the whole Milky Way galaxy, and you should be seeing a picture right now of the Milky Way galaxy. The whole Milky Way galaxy, I'm told, scientists believe there's somewhere between 250 and 300 billion stars. 1990, the Hubble telescope was launched into orbit. And that was the first, but it's not, not the, the largest telescope, but it's the first launched into to orbit, and, or not the first, but it is the largest, launched into orbit. It's, it's in low Earth orbit. And, and through that telescope, we have these amazing images. You could Google Hubble Space Telescope and see all these, these images that come out all the time. And we're able to capture images like this. You should be seeing that on your screen right now. But, but there's a second image that I want to put up on the screen now. And that second image, I'm told, is three light years tall. That image looks like it would be something we would see at the bottom of the ocean, yet it's a picture taken by the Hubble telescope, a picture taken in space. And all this declares the glory of God. It's not that the galaxy is so glorious. That beauty is merely a reflection of the awesome glory of the Lord. 
the glory of God is also seen not only in, in creation, but it's also seen in Christ. The Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to, to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Think about that verse for just a second. Don't know if you've thought about this much, but, but Jesus in Scripture is described as the agent of creation. All the beauty that we saw just a moment ago up on the screen, all the beauty was created by Christ. All the beauty we saw just a second ago, the vastness of space, all of that came into being because of Jesus. Space is vast, but Jesus is more vast. Space is beautiful. But Jesus is far more beautiful, more glorious. Think about this for a moment. Jesus not only created this, but, but understand he sustains it all. He holds it all together by his powerful word. Jesus, friends, is glorious. And there are those moments in the Gospels when the disciples get glimpses of the glory of Jesus. There are those moments when they come to understand that Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher. He's more than just a wonder worker. He's more than just the most compassionate person who ever walked the face of the planet. There are those moments when it's like scales fall off their eyes and they realize they're standing in the presence of God. And so I like that story out of Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus chooses his three closest disciples peter james and john and he said let's go up on a high mountain i don't know if they knew or not but you know a lot of incredible things in scripture happen when when you go up on a mountain i mean jesus most famous sermon is on a mountain when jesus gave the disciples their great commission at the end of his ministry it was on a mountain moses goes up on a mountain to receive the ten commandments he has this experience with god so so jesus takes peter james and john they go up on a mountain and it says in Matthew 17 that he was transfigured before them. Literally, he was transformed in front of their very eyes. And what do they see? It says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. His face was so bright, I wonder if they could even, if it's like looking into the sun. You, just, you, can't, you can't stare very long. It's so bright. I wonder if it was like that for them when they were looking into the face of of Jesus and they said that his clothes were as white as light what was happening in this moment for just a second it was like God was was pulling back the humanity of Jesus and they got a glimpse of his divinity they saw Jesus in all of his glory but you see not only do we see the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in Christ we see the glory of God displayed vividly on the cross. So in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus makes this astounding statement. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that first phrase in that verse, the hour has come. That's not the first time 
you read that statement. That statement is first mentioned by, by, in Scripture in John chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus is at this party, he's at this wedding celebration, and there's this incredible social faux pas that happens. They run out of wine. The parties are about ready to come to an end. And so Jesus' mother knows that Jesus has the power to do something about it. And so he says, she in essence asks, asks him to turn this water into, to do something, to provide more wine. And Jesus says in John 2, 5, my hour has not yet come. But now we're in John 12 and it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We wonder, what does that mean? What is this business about being glorified? The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, you'll know that really from John 12 on to the end of the book, 12 to 21, the climax, the high point of John's book, it's when Jesus goes to the cross. And he hints at this in the very next verse, verse 24, where he says, Very truly I tell you that unless a, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seed. Jesus is referring to his death here. How does the cross reflect the glory of God? I mean, Jesus is going to be betrayed and beaten and stripped naked and hung up on a cross and left to die. That looks to me like defeat. It looks to me like humiliation and utter failure. This doesn't look very glorious. And yet Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I want to suggest to you today that the cross reveals the glory of God because it is only on the cross that we see the full brilliance and beauty of God's holiness and God's love. In John 12, 31, Jesus says to us, Now is the time for judgment on this world. I realize in this culture, we don't like to think about judgment. But Jesus says the cross is a place of judgment. Understand, God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't say, oh, it, it doesn't matter, it's okay. His nature will not allow that. If, if sin didn't matter, then Jesus would not have been nailed to a cross. Sin must be judged. Jesus had previously said in verse 27, as he was thinking about going to the cross, he said, my soul is troubled. Now we said in that previous message series that the soul is that internal, eternal part of us. It's the deepest part of us. It's it's also a word that can be described as, as all of us. It's an expansive, big word. Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm deeply, my soul, the deepest part of me, it's, it's troubled. Why is Jesus so troubled? I mean, people had gone to the cross before. There are plenty of examples of people showing a lot of courage, going to a cross and, and dying. Jesus' death on the cross is unique in this. He didn't die for his sins. He had no sin. He died for my sin. And he died for your sin. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 
Jesus was deeply troubled because he was about to experience some things he'd never experienced before. He took my anger, my anger in itself is not a sin, but anger can become sin. He took that rage that I've experienced and you've probably experienced too. And Jesus, he, he, took, he took the things I've done to damage others. He took my sin of omission and my sins of, of commission. He, he took the times I've used people and, and ignored God. He, he's taken my lust. He's taken my, my secret sin. He's taken my selfishness. He's taken all of that. He's taken all of your stuff too. All the sin that you've committed, ever committed, and that everyone has committed, that sin, that sin was placed on Jesus. He, he took it upon himself and he experienced that judgment. At the cross, Jesus in essence says we are fully known. We're fully known because though we come into environments like this and we like to, you know, we like to, as I say before, it's the fellowship of the fine. We like to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, how are you? We might come bearing a lot of stuff, a lot of struggle, and we're not, we're not very open with each other. We, we kind of want to you know, put on, we want to wear our Sunday best. And we, we come to church and everything's fine, but, but you know and I know, we, there's stuff in our life. Well, Jesus knows all about that, and he took it on himself. The cross says we're all fully known, but the cross also says we are fully loved. In John 12, in verse 32, Jesus says, And what I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all people, all men and women to myself. The cross looked like the opposite of glory. It was ugly and brutal. But Jesus says, when I am lifted up on that cross, I'm doing this so I can draw people to me. I've been drawn to the cross. I've been drawn to Jesus. And Ed has been drawn to Jesus. And Mike has been drawn to Jesus. And Martha has been drawn to Jesus. And Mimi's been drawn to Jesus. When Christ is lifted up from the earth and we see what He did on our behalf, the judgment He took for us, we see that we are both fully known and we're fully loved. And that love is powerful. It's, it's like a magnet. It, it's glorious, that love is. It draws us to God. On the cross, we see both the holiness of God and the love of God. It's a place where we're fully known and fully loved. Now, earlier we read in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5, that verse that says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. And we said there's that close-in, near-time view, which, which is God's glory was seen in Isaiah's day when eventually the people of God were led out of Babylonian captivity. But there's something else ahead that, that I think this prophet is looking forward to, and I think how that glory is ultimately revealed. It's when Christ went to the cross and we were delivered from sin and guilt and shame through what Jesus did for us. Friends, the cross prominently and powerfully displays the glory of God. So what does this really mean for us? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is reflecting on the glory of God. And he retells this Old Testament story that's somewhat familiar to us about the time when, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And, and it was a glorious moment. He was in the presence of God. And, and, and in fact, his whole body glowed because he was in the presence of the brightness and the glory and the splendor and the holiness of God. His whole body was glowing as he came down off the mountain. And so he put a veil on his face. He put a veil on his face so that others, you know, wouldn't be adversely affected. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, today, some people's hearts are veiled. And you might be like that today. Maybe you're having a difficult time seeing the glory of God. Maybe you're having a difficult time seeing Jesus for all he is. Maybe you're struggling with beholding the glory of God. But here's the the truth. The good news is, when we come to Jesus, Paul tells us, when we're drawn to Jesus through the cross, he says, then the veil is removed. And now with unveiled faces, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces, we contemplate, we behold, we experience the Lord's glory. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we look on Jesus and we see how glorious He is and we contemplate His glory? When that happens, it says, then we are transformed. When we walk outside and stare into the skies and see the vastness and the beauty of of creation and realize that Jesus did this. Oh, in a sense, we feel so small, but on another level, it fills our hearts with awe. Jesus did this. He's doing this. And when we look at the cross and come to understand that we're both fully known and fully loved, it creates in our Heart, such a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness today maybe some of you have come into this place and maybe it's like a veil is over your eyes I'm wondering if if you'll let Jesus take that veil off your eyes and when you look at the cross and see what happened there You come to understand that you're fully known. Jesus knows your heart. He knows what you've experienced. He knows what you've done. He knows about your secret sin. He does. He took it on himself. You're both fully known and fully loved. I'm wondering this morning if if some or one might need to respond to that glorious truth. Jesus is lifted up and he says, I will draw all men to myself. Maybe this morning he is drawing you right now, drawing you to himself. Maybe you just need to talk with a shepherd and their wife. We'll have a couple of shepherds in the very back during this time of ministry. In just a moment we sing this song. Some might need to talk with a shepherd. Or maybe, maybe there's someone who needs to meet me down front. And we can have a conversation about what it means. What it means to be fully known and fully loved by Jesus. Today, if you have a need, we can help you with Come to Jesus as we stand and as we sing.